Good morning. What a pleasure it has been to worship with you today, and I pray that you are well as we begin today. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've been in this letter for about four weeks, and we've looked at many things. We've looked at the fact that it's an amazing letter, an early, early letter, written in 50 AD, 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. It gives us an early look into the ministry of the early church. But at the heart of this letter, really, is a pastor's concern for congregation, isn't it? Paul had been with this congregation for just a few weeks. They were infants in the faith, and then Paul got forced out of town. He wasn't sure they were ready to stand a trial that might come their way. So Paul was gravely concerned for them. He desired to get back quickly, and yet it didn't work out. He went to Berea And the same Jewish leaders that had caused problems in Thessalonica followed him there and caused problems for him in Berea. Paul went to Athens, but he saw an opportunity to send Timothy back to Thessalonica. And it's clear what he wanted to know. Are they surviving? How are they doing? Are they standing strong in the faith? Can you imagine Paul's wait for a response? Eventually, Timothy comes back, and what a joy his report is. They're not just surviving, they are thriving. The Thessalonians are thriving in the faith. They once were those that followed the example of Paul, but now they are the ones setting the example for others to follow. They are evangelizing their own city and their own region of Macedonia and even the neighboring region of Achaia. They are a strong church, a model church for the churches of their age and also even a model of what the church can be for churches today in our time. So Paul has reason for thanksgiving. We saw it, didn't we? We saw last chapter 2 that Paul transitioned into his apologia or his apology, if you will, his defense against charges that he was a charlatan. Any claim that Paul's a charlatan does not go along with the facts. Paul never used flattering words. He never used his apostolic authority. He never preached in a man-pleasing way. He never sought profit. All Paul did was work day and night that he might preach the gospel. What charlatan does that? Now, my friends, Paul is also remembering that he has other things to be thankful for, like that when the Thessalonians heard the word of God, they received it. They didn't just hear it, they received it. And in receiving it, they also loved it and accepted it. And Paul was thankful that it was an effective word, as God's word is always effective, to do exactly what God sent it out to do. So Paul is thankful for all those things, but Paul also shows us, as we saw last Sunday, that there is a judgment falling upon the enemies of God. Now Paul knows this applies directly to his kinsmen, but he says judgment has fallen upon them. They have filled up the full measure of their sinfulness, and God's wrath is already here. Now, Paul likely saw birthing pains of judgment in his day, but he knew a fuller judgment was coming. Now, that's a lot that we've looked at, isn't it? We've looked at the city of Thessalonica, the mission team, the church, the surrounding Macedonian region, the era in which they lived, the history and actually seen so many things in these four weeks. But now we're ready to move into new ground. And so if you have your Bibles, be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 17 through 20. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, 
endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Amen. The word of the Lord. As we look at that word today, I want us to look at three points to help us to understand this text. First of all, cause of separation. Paul wants them to know the cause of separation and why he left town. Second of all, obstacles to a visit. Paul has wanted to return, but he has not been able to. And third, the reasons for a visit. Why does Paul want to get back to Thessalonica? I pray that God will help us to see these three points. Let's start with the cause of separation. Now, Paul has just laid out the judgment that is falling upon the opponents of the gospel. Now, he has in mind the Jewish opponents who have made accusations against him and have caused problems for the mission team. And now he wants to draw a strong contrast between them. And so he uses an adversative, uh, uh, but we, in other words, not like them, but we, unlike those who have opposed you and us and the work of God, we were driven away. But we, brethren, having been taken away, in other words, the force of the language is even stronger, we were removed from your presence. If it had been up to us, Paul says, we would have stayed. We would have ministered. We would have encouraged you. We would have suffered with you and for you. But it was not up to us. So don't think that our absence reflects a lack of care or concern for you. Now, immediately this feels like a further apologia or apologia, an apology, doesn't it? It feels like Paul is defending himself, like, like there's been a charge that he didn't care if he left. He didn't want to stay. He didn't want to come back. Now, it would make sense, wouldn't it, that those who are enemies of Paul might charge that if he is a charlatan, he doesn't really have their best interests at heart. You can imagine what they would argue. If Paul's a traveling con man, he does not have any interest in you. When the Jews stood their ground, they could say, look, these charlatans got out of Dodge. They left down the road. They were never to be seen again. In fact, they moved on down to the road to the suckers in Berea. And know this, that when we followed them to Berea and stood on ground there, they fled again. If they are not charlatans, they have a funny way of acting like charlatans. But Paul wants to remind the Thessalonians that if that is the charge, it lacks truth. For they had been taken away. That's the language Paul uses there in 17. Having been taken away. He reminds them that it was not their desire, the missions team desire to leave. As we mentioned several weeks ago, most scholars believe that part of the security that was demanded for Jason's release was that the troublemakers had to leave town. Did Paul view this as merely an inconvenience or a setback? No, of course not. Paul has described himself in familial terms uh, in relationship to the Thessalonian believers. He described himself as a nursing mother or as a caring and good father. We see the force of that idea here in what he uses, the word Paul uses. He uses aporphenizo. It's a, a verb form of a word that means to be torn away or separated. The noun form of this word pops up twice in the New Testament in John 14, 18, where Jesus talks about being left orphans and James 1, 27, where it talks about, you know, true religion is taking care of widows and orphans. 
So while this word originally meant orphan, it came to have a a wider meaning in Greek culture. It also uh, began to take on the opposite meaning of a parent that had lost a child. So when you think about what Paul is saying here, he's saying that his being ripped away from the Thessalonian believers was like a parent losing their child. This is not the way you describe marks in a scam. This is the way you describe somebody who cares deeply for these people. A man who looks at these Thessalonian believers as children, beloved children, that he has been taken away from. And he wants nothing more than to be restored to their presence. So there has been a physical separation. There's no denying that. But look what Paul says in this verse. While he has been taken away, it has not been in heart. Paul wants nothing more than to be reunited with this congregation. But they should not misread it. J.B. Phillips translates this text this way. Since we have been physically separated from you, my brothers, though never for a moment separated in heart. Paul emphasizes the desire to be reunited in the words that he wrote here, that he endeavored even more eagerly. Now, isn't it interesting? Because that actually translates to something like he was most exceedingly zealous to see their face again. Now, Paul uses basically redundancy there, doesn't he? It'd be enough to say he was zealous to see them. It would be redundant to say he was exceedingly zealous. But Paul says, I was most exceedingly zealous to see your face. And Paul personalizes that truth by saying, even I, Paul. Again, as an apologia, this feels like someone has said, Paul doesn't even care. Timothy at least returned, but Paul doesn't care. Paul says, I've wanted to return. I've wanted to come back and check on you. Any charge of the contrary is false. Well, if we've seen our cause of separation, then brothers and sisters, I want us to see the obstacles that Paul found in a visit to Thessalonica. If Paul has established that there was cause for a separation and a desire to be together again, he now wants to tell the Thessalonians why it has not occurred. If he wanted to return, why hasn't he returned? Well, while there's been a strong desire to return, there have been obstacles. Paul refers to himself as a a parent desiring reunion, and yet reunion has not yet taken place. Paul's force of language informs us here as well as in the first point. If the separation was forced, Paul wants the Thessalonians to know that any continued separation is attributable to the same reason. How else could a parent stay away from the children so suddenly separated from. Now, my friends, if you want to think about this for a moment, Paul makes it clear that there is a source of, this, of these obstacles. There is a source of these obstacles. He says that Satan hindered us. Now, that word that Paul uses for hinder there, ectopo, it means to use strong measures in causing someone not to do something. It comes from a Greek idea, a Greek word, root word, a military to tear up a road to stop an advancing enemy. That led Sir William Ramsey to argue that the politarchs in Thessalonica were the real idea here. They were the ones that had prevented the return because this is an official term and they were the only officials involved in the story. Others think it's illness or the general persecution going on. I think there's reason to see it as the Jewish leadership who even went to Berea to stir up trouble for Paul. Whatever it was, we know the source of it. The hindering came from Satan, the adversary. Uh, F.F. Bruce calls Satan uh, the adversary par excellence. 
I want to make a couple of points before we move on here because we've established that there were obstacles. Paul makes that clear. We don't know the fullness of what those obstacles are, but we know who was behind them. And that brings me to these two points I want to make before we move to our third point. First of all, and it should be said, I think it's important to say, that we live in an age that many people downplay Satan. They want to depersonalize evil. They want to make evil something that just happens, not uh, uh, the result of a personal force. And yet we see that the Bible never makes that argument. Even churches fail to preach what the Scriptures teach about Satan, and yet we need to recognize what, what is said about him. What's worse, liberal churches have completely rejected the biblical presentation of Satan altogether. They would join the secular world that if evil exists at all, it is just some impersonal force. These liberal and modernist Christians will often quote Paul, but they ignore him when he says anything they don't like. Quite simply, Paul presents Satan as an intelligent, personal spirit working against the will, plan, and people of God. And that is in keeping with the entire revelation of Scripture. Thus Satan exists, and he is a serious adversary. And this is seen clearly in the text that we're covering today. But if that's our first theological point we want to see, there's a second one. And it needs to be said, it's important to say. God and Satan are not equals in this battle. Far too often Christians miss this point. Satan is not God. He does not share the attributes of God. He is not omnipotent. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. Ultimately, God's will cannot be thwarted by Satan. Now, while God allows Satan to act for a time, Satan is not sovereign. We can see that in the book of Job, can't we? Where Satan cannot even act without God's permission. Even where God allows evil to exist and function, God has a purpose that is even more glorious. He superintends the evil purposes, ultimately for good. We see that in Joseph in Genesis. What the brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. Certainly God is not the author of evil, but wherein evil creatures intend evil, God superintends their evil purposes to bring about His goodwill and His good purpose. Is that not the clear meaning of Romans 8.28? How could God say that He's working all things together for good, for His people, for those who love Him and who are the called according to His purpose if He did not take evil and superintend it for good. My friends, if this weren't true, what security could we have? If Satan could thwart the will of God, what confidence could we have in the promises of God? Now, that's an essential point to emphasize. As I was reading several commentators on today's passage, I noticed that they did not adequately emphasize this theological distinction. F.F. Bruce, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, he wrote this in his commentary on this passage. His, meaning Satan's, main activity is putting obstacles in the path of the people of God to prevent the will of God from being accomplished in them and through them. Now, brothers and sisters, we need to be very careful here. While Satan may see and desire to prevent the will of God, we must be very careful to note his lack of standing on equal footing with God. God's sovereign will must come to pass, for He is God. He alone gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. That's what Paul wrote in Romans 
our assurance of the fulfillment of all of God's promises rests on both his faithfulness and his power to keep his promises. Now, my friends, when Paul speaks of Satan hindering them, Paul does not mean that that meant that Satan could thwart the will and plan of God. It just meant that Paul recognized that Satan was standing in steadfast rebellion against God and trying in any way he could to upset the plan of God. But Paul would have understood that Satan can only do what God allows him to do. In God's permissive will, he allows Satan to hinder Paul for a purpose. We're not sure the purpose. Only God knows these things. But one thing we did learn in the hindering that Paul faced was that the Thessalonian church was used powerfully of God even when Paul wasn't there. Now, my friends, I want us to move to our third and final point this morning. Reasons for a visit. Reasons for a visit. Because Paul has established that he had not wanted to leave Thessalonica and that there had been obstacles which had prevented his return. Now, Paul will present a positive argument that should clear up any question of his desire to be with the Thessalonian believers. Paul argues that it was in his interest to return to that great city. Now, this is a direct refutation of the argument of his opponents, isn't it? What then is Paul's evidence to support his claim? How was it in Paul's interest to be in Thessalonica with the Thessalonian believers? Well, Paul's answer rests on his motivation for ministry. If you want to understand Paul, you need to understand his motivation in ministry. What is the motivation? The answer is, it's the Thessalonian believers themselves. Paul calls them his hope, his joy, his crown. Their story represents the great hope that Paul had for the second missionary journey. The hope that he would go into Macedonia and see a great city come to faith, service and glory in Jesus Christ. Further, it was Paul's joy to see the name of Christ honored amongst those who had never heard the gospel before. There in Thessalonica, Paul found the joy of a new vibrant family in Christ. And further, Paul refers to the Thessalonian believers as his crown. Now, the word that he uses here is Stephanos. It's not the word used for a kingly crown, but for a crown of victory and gains, a crown of civic worth, of valor, of joy, of festival gladness. Now, these crowns were often made of leaves of celery or uh, the leaves of oak trees or, or made of ivy or myrtle trees. As mentioned in the definition, Paul is referring to a secular idea here in this reference, one that would have been understood by any hearer in the Greco-Roman world. The competitor in the ancient games undertook the rigors of preparing for and competing in games for the purpose of achieving victory. Why do you enter the game? You want to win. And in victory, the competitor was given a crown of honor. But the honor wasn't primarily individual in the ancient games you represented your city thus your victory was principally your city's victory now we we can understand this it used to be that when you went to compete for the united states of america first and foremost your victory in the olympics was an american victory that seems to be getting lost along the way doesn't it it seems like it's just athletes who win but it used to be that 
You went and competed for your nation. You wanted to bring honor and glory to your nation. Well, so it was in the days of Paul. If you were an athlete and you were traveling to the games, you were competing to bring honor and glory to your city. Just as the athlete would return home to display the crown of victory to the city magistrate, so Paul does not want to stand before Christ when he returns empty-handed. That's the reason that Paul ties this to the return of Christ. When Christ returns, Paul desperately wants to have a crown to cast at the feet of his king. Just as you can imagine the joy of the athlete returning in front of the city magistrates and presenting his wreath, his laurel, if you will, his stephanos, his crown, to them as a, as a victory for the city. So too, Paul wants nothing more than to have this Thessalonian crown that he can hand to his glorious king. You see, the crown is not about Paul's glory. It's about Christ's glory. Paul wants to have something to present to his great king. And Paul's interest in the Thessalonians cannot be separated from his focus on the return of Christ. Many scholars have noted the eschatological thread that runs through all of Paul's letters, but particularly through these Thessalonian letters. Paul knows that it's in the final day that all, all shall be fully revealed. His concern for the Thessalonians is that the evidence of their lives would demonstrate that their faith had been genuine. That's what Paul means when he says he wants to have a crown. He wants the crown to be pure, a crown of victory, because the Thessalonians were true believers. In a previous sermon, we spoke of the importance of perseverance as an evidence of true and living faith. Paul desires that all that he presents to the Lord will stand the test of that last day, that this work would be fitting for presentation to the great and glorious king at his return. The word that Paul is using for Christ's return is a word widely known in the Greco-Roman world, parasia. It's, it's a word that is meaning being present or coming to a place. Parousia was a word that would have been widely known because it refers to an event and is most associated with the impending, impending arrival of a ruler in the age in which Paul lived. It was Caesar's arrival. When you thought of a, a parousia, you would think about the arrival of Caesar to a town and how they would scurry and prepare for such a moment. If Caesar was coming to a particular town, there were special preparations required. In this way, Paul is speaking of the imminent arrival of the true king. Caesar has no glory compared to our king. If our king is coming, you better be prepared. So the arrival of this king is the one that Paul says, I don't want to find myself unprepared. I don't want to stand there with empty hands when he returns. Brothers and sisters, I hope you feel that way. If there's something that concerns me in the church today, it's that no one seems to have this concern. Where are the people that desire, not out of fear, but out of a desire to bring glory to God, that they might have something to present to Him, some work that they did for His honor and glory? Paul was concerned about it. My friends, Paul recognizes that that great and all-filled day is coming. And if he is there when it comes, he does not want to stand empty-handed. And so for this reason, Paul desires that the Thessalonians focus on the true 
parousia. You know, it's interesting to me. Many of Paul's letters have an ironic touch, don't they? You can see it in Romans. We find a largely Gentile church struggling to reincorporate the returning Jewish believers who had been exiled from Rome. And Paul points out in Romans 9 through 11 that the church's current dilemma in Rome is a microcosm of what God has been doing in the larger salvific history. The Jews were blinded for their disbelief, with salvation moving to the Gentiles. But in time, the Jews shall once more return. So the problem that you're dealing with in a micro sense in Rome will be the greater problem of the church in general in God's salvific plan. Likewise, this letter revolves around a desire for Paul's parousia, Paul's return to Thessalonica. Paul responds to these faithful believers by saying that he has hoped to return. Sure, he wants to return. He desires to return, and he's thankful that they want him to return. Even so, Paul's response is that their focus should not ultimately be on his arrival, but on Christ. Until that day, they should strive and work for Christ's glory, not as one earning salvation, which we cannot do, but as one who is thankful for the salvation offered by the grace of God and desiring to honor God with works, for it is fitting If you recognize what God has done for you by His grace, it is fitting that you should honor Him to do whatever you can to bring glory to Him. Not, again, paying back something you owe. You can't do that. There is in no sense that you can pay what you owe for salvation, but it is fitting and proper to show thanksgiving and love and honor to the God who by grace has saved you. Though you were a slave to sin, though you were worthy of damnation, though you were worthy of judgment and hell, God, by His grace, has delivered you. What more could you want than to bring Him honor and glory through love? That's what Paul's asking. I want to close by returning to the point I made just a moment ago. The apostle Paul is concerned that he will stand empty-handed before Christ at his return. If Christ came back today, what is in your hands to present to Him? Have you ever thought about it? What have you got to present to the King of all glory? Because I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. If Christ were to return today or tomorrow or next week, and you stand before He who is glorious, to such a degree of glory that there are not words to describe how glorious He is, We will want to have something, no matter how humble, no matter how meager it is, something to present to our King. So I want to challenge you today to be prayerfully seeking what it is. Maybe it's your your family life. Maybe it is raising your children in a God-honoring way. Maybe it's the mission of, of being a godly father or husband or wife or mother or grandfather or grandmother or maybe it's your service in his church or maybe it's someone that you've been witnessing to faithfully for years praying for them desiring that they would enter the kingdom of God by God's grace my friends when we stand before him and we see him Paul says we now look through a glass darkly when that dark glass is removed and we see the glory You will want nothing more than to have some way to honor our great King. I pray you'll think about this and pray about this. That you might not stand empty-handed, 
before our glorious King. Amen.